0: This morning we are going to look at Luke chapter 9. We're gonna can see Jesus around yet another kind of table. So let me invite you to go ahead and turn to Luke 9. Uh, we'll pick up in verse 10 in just a minute. If you can remember back to last week's text, we were in Luke chapter 7. And it was a story about Jesus being invited into the home of Simon, the Pharisee. And, and Simon invited Jesus there in, in many ways, I think, to size up Jesus, to, to evaluate who Jesus was. But the surprising part of that story was this woman who shows up at the meal in Simon's home. And how during the course of that meal, Simon is challenged to see this woman in a new way. We talked about how seeing and eating are actually two things that go together. That passage in Luke 7 was particularly focused on how we set aside our prejudices, how we set aside our categories, right, so that we might actually start to see one another in the way that Jesus is able to see us. Luke believes that meals have the power to open our eyes. But with that in mind, the last week if you've been reading along in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 8, Luke chapter 9, it becomes clear that we also need additional help seeing someone else. And in Luke chapter 8 there is the story of the disciples out on the Sea of Galilee with Jesus and and a storm rolls in And you know this story well, but Jesus speaks over the troubled waters, and they are calmed. And as a response to being with Jesus in that moment, the disciples ask, who is this? Who is it that even the winds and the water obey him? And then similarly, at the start of Luke chapter 9, just several verses later we have Herod Antipas, who who was the the son of King Herod the Great. And he was given kind of governorship, or he ruled over the region of Galilee, where Jesus and his disciples were were doing incredible things, and working miracles, and, and teaching the people. And reports of these mighty deeds of Jesus come to Herod Antipas. And he begins to ask that same question. Who is this? Is this John the Baptist come back to life? Is this Elijah returning to Israel in some new way? And in verse 9 of Luke 9, we're told that Herod began to make an effort to see Jesus. He needed greater clarity to figure out who this person truly was. And so Luke is telling us that our our vision problem is not just limited to how we see one another. We actually need help seeing the person who is able to give us true sight. We need help seeing Jesus as he is. But like we've been saying for the last two weeks, one of the best places to learn how to see, one of the best places for the recovery of blind sight, is around a table. It's in sharing a meal with Jesus. And so today, as we come to this passage in Luke 9, I want us to be asking with the disciples and with King Herod, who is Jesus? How are we meant to see him? Let me pray for us as we we ask the scriptures to illuminate that. Lord Jesus, would you give us eyes to see? Would you eliminate the things that we stumble over and prevent us from seeing? Lord, would you take the words of my mouth, would you take the meditations of all our hearts, and work a miracle of rendering them anew, transforming them so that they might be adequate to describe who you are, to communicate who you are to us today. It's in Jesus' name we offer these prayers. Amen. So, as I've said, we're in Luke 9. Just before this is not only Herod's question about who Jesus is but also a kind of a, an early training mission that Jesus has sent his disciples out on. So at the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus sends them out, he sends them to the, the surrounding villages and he asks them to do two things. He tells them to proclaim that the kingdom of God has come and he, he tells them to engage in the healing of the sick. And so the, the disciples here in verse 10 are coming back from that training mission. And I think they're, they're likely filled with the excitement of, of accomplishment. Right? They've seen and witnessed God's power at work. But they're probably also a little road weary from all of their traveling, from all of that sort of being poured out. And so they are eager to have a time with Jesus all, all to themselves for a little while. And so that's where we pick up in verse 10. Luke says, when the apostles returned, when they came back from this preaching circuit, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. Jesus welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and he healed those who needed healing. He did the the very same things he had just sent the disciples out to do. But verse 12 says that, that 12 of them came to him and said, Send the crowd away, Jesus. Send them away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging, because we are in a remote, we are in a, a wilderness place here. Again, it seems like the goal of this little excursion is, is a time for the disciples to have Jesus all to themselves. And so they, they travel up to the very northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, to this area Known as Bethsaida. And I imagine as they arrive there, right, the disciples are are sort of expecting a time to process everything that's just happened, to debrief with Jesus, maybe to celebrate some of these early milestones in their discipleship. And they're envisioning probably camping by the shores there of the lake, resting for a few days, right, to have sort of time to soak up. Jesus together. Maybe you've had like a similar sort of goal on a vacation or a camping trip you've been on where you you go, you travel some some reasonable distance and you arrive in this beautiful place. And you you begin to relax and you think, isn't this great? I've, I've got all this time and all this incredible environment all to myself. And just as you're easing into that, right? Somebody else shows up. Maybe at the campsite next to you. Maybe you're at the beach and they put out their towel a little too close to yours there on the shore. And you start to get a little territorial about what's going on, right? Like, I, I've come here to rest things, not, not you, right? I, I, I need some space. I remember this happening uh, by Lake Champlain a couple years ago. We went there for the day just to relax and we... We're just resting. It was nice and quiet. And then somebody sat down on a blanket with their cell phone. And for an hour, they were just having this loud conversation, you know, 10 feet away. And I just thought, man, I, I came here. Don't, don't you know I need to rest? Well, here, here are the disciples. They've come away with Jesus. They're camped out probably next to their, their fire there. The Sea of Galilee's lapping at the shore. Maybe they wake up the first day to, to linger over a quiet breakfast. And then they see a couple strangers, you know, rowing, rowing in on the lake. And they're waving to Jesus, they're pointing. And what starts is maybe a few visitors becomes a few hundred by the middle of that morning. Maybe by lunchtime, there are now thousands of people coming Right? And there's, there's no possibility that they can just sort of ignore this group of people and hope they go away. Right? These people, just like these disciples, these 12, desire to be near Jesus too. They've come for rest. They've come for retreat. They've come for healing. And I know, and I don't want to under-emphasize that, Part of our discipleship is taking those times to rest, times to retreat. But we don't always get to dictate the terms on on which those times come to us and how they happen. And sometimes God sends unexpected visitors, unexpected circumstances our way. But look how Jesus responds to this interruption in verse 11 says as the crowds began to come in Jesus welcomed them he spoke to them about the kingdom of god he healed those who needed healing so jesus essentially luke says is providing hospitality he's providing soul care and he's providing physical restoration And the picture I get, though, is the disciples are probably going along with Jesus. They're probably obliging this this interruption as much as they have to. But they're they're sort of waiting for their chance to go back to retreat mode. You know, let's, let's move things along here. And so we're told that when the end of that day arrives, they have this sort of reasonable argument prepared for Jesus. Why it's time to call it a day and dismiss the crowds. It says that 12 of his disciples came to Jesus that afternoon. And I want you to remember that number because it's significant later. 12 came to him and they said, Jesus, we are in a remote place. We're in the wilderness here, Jesus. There's no supermarkets. There's no Uber delivery And so everyone, before they get hangry and upset, we need to send them away, right? Send them off to find adequate lodging, a place to have a decent meal for the night. And given the resources the disciples possess, it's it's a reasonable request. It's a reasonable strategy. But where the disciples see their own limitations... Jesus sees an invitation, a greater invitation. So he says in verse 13, he says to them, you give them something to eat. And the 12 answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. And about 5,000 men were there. But Jesus said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And the disciples did so, and everyone sat down. Now, what what we do with these verses, I think, is significant. Because there's one way of of reading these verses and and, and hearing them and hearing in Jesus' words, you do more. You give more. You figure out a way to make this happen, guys. But I don't think that's actually what Jesus is up to here. You've heard you've heard me speak about the importance of cultivating quiet time with Jesus and learning how to to practice prayer and to practice rest and to practice reflection and to engage in worship. And those practices are essential to our discipleship. I don't think we can grow as disciples without those things. But equally important to our discipleship is the practice described here. And I think that practice is sticking with Jesus. When we're tired... Sticking with Jesus when, when, when there's a very real possibility that we don't know what we're doing. When we don't know where we're going. When we don't know if we actually have the resources to meet the needs God has set before us. I think an important part of our discipleship is being confronted with our own sense of inadequacy. And so, surveying this... This tired, this hungry crowd of people, among which the disciples are included, right? They're tired, they're hungry too. Jesus looks at them and he says, you give them something to eat. Again, if I put myself in that situation, I think I would be a little upset. I'd be frustrated with Jesus here. And so the disciples counter Jesus' audacious request with some legitimate statistics. They say, Jesus, look, we've got maybe five loaves and two fish we could scrounge up from nearby here. Jesus, remember, you just sent us out on that mission. You told us, don't take any food with you. Depend on the hospitality of the people you're staying with to feed you. So we didn't bring anything on this little retreat mission. We don't have some incredible pantry to access. This is what we've got, Jesus. You want us to use this, really? We're going to feed all these people with this much? And I think their assumption is that when Jesus gets these details, when Jesus sees the metrics, this will get them off the hook. Jesus will excuse them from the catering job. But the way Jesus comes back, as usual, is surprising. I think it's it's precisely because they have so little that Jesus says, I'm sticking with the plan. You guys get the job. As Eugene Peterson has argued, our incompetence might be the most essential qualification for our discipleship. Let me say that again. Our own incompetence might be the most essential qualification we possess in discipleship. Jesus values precisely what we are lacking. and Let me give you maybe a few examples of that. Right, every week I, I experience at least a little dose of this as a preacher. Right, I climb up into this pulpit, and I, I bring with me a keen sense of my own inadequacy. Right? I'm never sure whether there are words or wisdom enough to meet the, the needs of this body. Right? I am not competent enough to proclaim the living word of God to you. I've heard many of you who are parents describe this feeling of inadequacy or incompetence, right? When there are particular days, maybe particular weeks, maybe particular months. When you don't feel there could possibly be enough of yourself to meet the needs looking back at you and your children, right? No parent is competent enough to care for all of those. Maybe, like me, you've watched the news this past month, or maybe the past two or three years, and you also feel that similar sense of inadequacy. Right? With all the things that are wrong in our world, all of the, the horrific headlines we might read, right? how could I possibly begin to address any of it? And so often in, in resignation, I, I feel like, Jesus, can't you see... My hands are empty, right? Jesus, can't you send these problems away to somebody else, somewhere else that can help them? Right? I don't have the competence to fix this. Let me ask you, where do you feel inadequate today? What's something that's before you that you feel unable to fix or to heal, or to feed. Where, where do you come to Jesus and say, what gives? I don't, I don't have enough for this. In every one of those instances, there, there is the truth that, in fact, we are inadequate. Our five loaves, our two fish, will not be But I want us to look at how Jesus answers our inadequacies. This is a a gospel story, and so Jesus is going to speak good news into that place of deficit. Jesus replies to their concerns, and he tells the twelve. He says, go out, tell the people to sit down. Sort of. The actual verb that Luke uses several times in this passage, in verse 14 and following, is kataklina in the Greek. And it's the word that that more accurately would be translated recline. Go out, tell the people to recline. And in Jesus' day, you reclined when you were getting ready to eat, right? When you were ready to feast, when you were getting ready for a banquet. What Jesus is saying, if I can paraphrase, is give me your inadequate provisions and you go out, you set the table. You tell everyone gathered here to assume banqueting posture. And so we're told in verse 15, the disciples in faith comply. They set everyone down in these groups of 50 persons. And they tell them to get ready for a meal that they have no way to feed them. Right? That's, that's crazy. But I wonder if that's actually a picture of discipleship for us. Sam, can you jump the slide ahead? There we go. What if discipleship is actually about setting a table that we do not have the means to fill up? What if discipleship is is about setting a table for ourselves, setting the table for other hungry people, knowing that we don't have what's needed to be put on that table? What if we come to that table simply on the basis that we are hungry and that we know we need to eat. To do that, that that kind of discipleship requires us to have faith in a God who believes in surprise as an aspect of his hospitality. To have faith in a God who delights in showing up at those empty tables. Let me tell you a a crazy but true story. I I knew, briefly, knew a principal during our time uh, overseas teaching uh, who was teaching at that point in China, but years before that he had been working for a school in Australia. And this guy had kind of a reputation for doing crazy and surprising things. One year, he had been asked to lead a trip of high school students on a a wilderness expedition uh, kind of in the Australian outback. And this was to be sort of a capstone experience for their, their high school years. And he told me with this big grin on his face, he said, you know what, on the last day of that hike, everyone woke up, they got their packs on, and they discovered that we didn't have any meal rations packed for the last day got this big smile on his face. And this was, this was one of his little surprises. So everybody wakes up. They're hungry. They're looking ahead to one last long hard day of hiking before they have anything to eat. But of course, this guy has other things in mind. And so midway through the day, they come over you know, a small hill, a small mountain, and they come down into this, this valley And as they come into this valley, there's no roads around, kind of no sign of civilization yet. There are several large tables set up in the middle of this, this open space. And they've got tablecloths on them, they've got plates, they've got silverware, right there in the middle of the Australian bush. And of course, that's a surprising enough sight by itself. But even more surprising was that All of these tables set in the middle of nowhere had no food on them. They were were completely empty other than place settings. Now, of course, our friend had something to do with the presence of these tables there. He had arranged to have them set up ahead of time. And so he invited these boys who were with him on the trip to sit down at these empty tables. He told them to rest for a little bit. And as all of them sat there at these empty tables, hungry, wishing there were food, finally he instructed one of the boys to pray. He said, why don't we pray and ask for food? And of course, he had been timing all of this very carefully on his watch. And within a minute of the boys' prayer, they heard the sound of a helicopter (laughs) coming into the valley. And it was one of these boys' fathers, who was a pilot, And he flew in this hot, gourmet meal that they unpacked and set out on the plates. And they spent the next hour or two dining in the wilderness. And this guy had spent probably months planning every detail of that event, right? Setting the table for a single meal that he knew these kids would remember for the rest of his life. This guy was really into his surprises. But in our text, so is Jesus. Jesus delights in surprising us. Jesus Jesus doesn't just have a few dozen hikers waiting to eat. He's got 100 tables at least with 50 or more people seated at each, each one. They're all reclining there by the seashore in Bethsaida, waiting Food to arrive. So in verse 16, it says Then Jesus, taking the five loaves and two fish the twelve had given him, and looking up to heaven, Jesus gave thanks and he broke them. And then he gave them back to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. I think it's almost as if Jesus is saying, You set the table, I will supply the meal. You gather the people who are hungry and tired. You bring them into groups. Tell them to sit down. And then you give me whatever meager resources you have to put in the pot. And let me do the rest. Trust me to show up. And so this meal in Bethsaida, it turns out it's not about our hospitality. It's about the incredible, the lavish hospitality of God. And so many things in the way Jesus does this are intentional signs back to the way God has been hospitable throughout history. Right? He's the God who showed up in the remote wilderness of Sinai. Right? When, when these Hebrew slaves were hungry and tired and beginning to get angry, Jesus didn't send them back to Egypt to go get bread and meat, but he rained it down from the skies upon them. It's the same God who during the time of famine in the prophet Elijah's day took the few loaves that Elijah had and he multiplied them to be enough to feed a hundred prophets who had gathered and were still proclaiming the name of Israel's true God. And it's the same God who the prophet Isaiah repeatedly says will one day gather all his people on his mountain and he will set before them a banqueting table and at the head of that table will be Messiah. And when the people eat on that day, they will no longer thirst, but they will eat and be satisfied. Jesus takes all of those stories and they come into fulfillment through him in a greater way. And the beauty of this passage is that as Jesus multiplies each course of the meal, look what he does with it. He puts it back into the hands of these 12 disciples. And he tells them to take it to the people. And after... The meal is over, he sends the same 12 back out to the tables to gather up the leftovers. Right? Jesus chooses to make his superabundant provision. He chooses to make it flow through our super inadequate hands. On purpose. Right? Where we have deficit, Jesus is interested in meeting us. And several of of the commentators suggest that it's quite possible that this miracle was like the one at Cana, where only those who were serving the meal understood what had taken place. It might have been only the twelve who understood there were no great reserves for this meal. Jesus was doing this as pure miracle. But the people Jesus wants to speak with and speak to most are those twelve who came to him. Who came to him and felt like they were missing out. Like they were giving away the precious time they had with Jesus. Like they had to give away even the precious little food they might reserve for themselves. To this crowd. Jesus, why are you asking me to do this? I can't do this. So that all 12 of them might see the abundance so that all 12 of them would actually come back with their very own basket at the end of this meal, full of bread and fish that they could share around the campfire that night with Jesus themselves. What a picture of surprising hospitality. What miracle of multiplication is Jesus asking us to treat him with? As you think about that, I I have a hunch that it probably connects to the place you feel most inadequate right now. Jesus desires to enter into that space with us. So Jesus does this incredible thing. He sets his own table. He, He calls us to set the table. He fills that table with himself, with a meal only he could provide. But I want us to see how this story finishes. Let's take one more minute here. We're told in the next three verses what happens after. After this incredible meal, Jesus sits the disciples down and he asks them a question. He asks the twelve, who do these crowds say I am? We're back to the questions we started with. And the disciples say, some of them think you're John the Baptist. Some of them say you're Elijah. Elijah come back, maybe even a prophet of old. But then Jesus looks at them and he says, well, who do you say I am? And here's Peter, just having dined with Jesus, having eaten at a table that only God could fill up. Peter has no doubt. And he looks into Jesus' eyes and he sees him as he is. He says, you are God's Messiah. May God open our eyes as well. Amen.